so glad you've joined us on the ERLC podcast to explore how the Bible addresses important cultural issues pertaining to life, religious liberty, marriage and family, and human dignity, and how we can walk in wisdom for God's glory and for the flourishing of our neighbors. If you're enjoying this podcast and find it helpful, please leave a review wherever you listen. This will help more people find and benefit from what we're learning together. We are grateful for the time you take to join us for these conversations. Welcome back to another episode of Weekly Tech, a technology and ethics podcast focused on navigating this digital age with wisdom. Weekly Tech is a project of the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission, and I'm your host, Jason Thacker. As always, alongside this podcast, we also have the Weekly Tech newsletter that you can sign up to receive each Monday morning, which is designed to help you think deeply about the pressing technology issues of the day and also to stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. In today's episode, I'm joined by Dr. David Van Drunen, who's a professor of systematic theology and Christian ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. And we talk about his latest book, Politics After Christendom. Dr. Van Drunen is a minister in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and began teaching at Westminster Seminary, California in 2001. He formerly served as a pastor of Grace Orthodox Presbyterian Church in Hanover Park, Illinois, and currently serves on the Orthodox Presbyterian Church's Committee on Christian Education and Subcommittee on Ministerial Training. He does much of his current research and writing at the intersection of systematic theology, biblical studies, ethics, legal, and political theory. And now let's join our conversation. Well, Dr. Banger, and thank you so much for joining us here on Weekly Tech. To get started, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and why you decided to write this recent book, Politics After Christendom, Political Theology in a Fractured World? Sure. Um, I am uh, a minister of the gospel in the Orthodox Presbyterian Church and um, have been so for over 20 years. And uh, I've served since 2001 as uh, the... Uh, Robert B. Strimple Professor of Systematic Theology and Christian Ethics at Westminster Seminary, California. We're in the San Diego area. And so I've been teaching ethics and theology for uh, quite a long time now. But really, my my interest in the subject I address in this book uh, goes back a really long ways. Uh, I was I was raised in a Christian family and uh, I've been serious about the faith for as long as I can remember. But also when I was young, I became interested in political things, and uh, I wouldn't say it was necessarily a real theological interest in political things uh, early on. But uh, as I uh, as I became an adult, and as I pursued my studies, and began to uh, aspire to the Christian ministry, uh, I sort of inevitably began thinking about political things in a theological and biblical way and trying to determine what was a a faithful and a godly way to work through some of these uh, many issues, many complicated issues. Uh, When I was finished with my uh, initial theological studies, when I received my Master of Divinity, 
I ended up going to law school, uh, and I didn't do that in order to become a lawyer, but really in order to uh, have a better understanding of the legal side of some of these issues. Uh, and then I ended up uh, studying theology, uh, uh, working on a PhD in ethics, and all this time I was trying to work through these uh, these sorts of issues. And I really uh, began a long-term project trying to think through uh, issues of Christianity and culture uh, from a, I guess you might say, a Reformation perspective uh, uh, as a Reformation Christian. And really, this book that we're talking about, Politics After Christendom, is, as I see it, the culmination of uh, uh, many years of thinking through these issues. Uh, so I tried to bring together a lot of my previous work here and to um, try to engage a lot of longstanding issues of theological thinking about politics and the Christian's place in political community, and then trying to think through a lot of classical uh, questions of political and legal theory. So that's a little bit of a background. It's You might say it's sort of a, uh, not quite a lifelong project, but uh, maybe half of a life's project for me so far. Yeah. Well, I know this is a monumental work, and I highly recommend listeners to grab this. I've devoured it, um, really love um, the book, it's something that's kind of caused me, it's challenged me in some ways, and we'll get into a little bit of that later. Um, but as we get started, I know the idea of Christendom is problematic for some. Um, the idea, uh, it sits kind of uneasy. There's a connotation, a negative connotation toward uh, the idea of Christendom. And many see it as outdated, obviously, in a pluralistic society that we live in today. Can you help define what is this period of Christendom? Because obviously you're writing politics after Christendom. But what is Christendom and what was this shift towards a more modern society? Yeah, that's a great question uh, to ask from the outset. Uh I think especially because the word Christendom is sometimes used in, in different ways. Uh, the way I'm using it here, um, really, as I would see it, Christendom began in the late patristic era or the early Middle Ages. Uh, it was really the, uh, a, a time and a system in which Christianity became predominant uh, in uh, what was then uh you might say the the late uh, Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire, and Christianity, in a sense, became the official religion. Uh, these societies became uh, officially Christian societies, and eventually that spread through uh, most of Europe. And for a very long time, uh, you had uh, a sort of social political system in which it was basically assumed that everyone in the societies uh, were Christians, um, in which governments uh, and legal institutions and economic institutions and academic institutions were all assumed to be Christian institutions. And so you might say it was a confessionally Christian society. And that, uh, that lasted for a, a very, very long time. Uh, there's not really uh, one particular date that you can say Christendom ended, but I think you can say that beginning um, in what we might think of as the early modern period up until really fairly recently, uh, there was a gradual decline 
in the sense that we live in Christian societies, uh, either people in Europe or in North America, we have gradually come to the point where uh, what religion you are is optional, uh, in which we don't think of our public institutions as necessarily having a uh, religious character or making a religious confession. Uh, we think of our societies now as pluralistic, uh, in which what political or what religious confession one makes, or even if one makes any kind of religious confession, is seen as optional. So the way that Christians look at politics living in the midst of that kind of Christendom society uh, is certainly going to be very different from the kinds of questions and issues that we're dealing with today uh, when we're living in a post-Christendom pluralistic kind of community. The way you lay out the book, I think, is really helpful. You start off with a section or a part on political theology and defining the contours of that, and then you shift over to a section on political ethics where you get into not application-based but kind of applying it to a lot of these modern concepts and questions that people have surrounding the legitimate role of government and society and what that looks like. Early on in the book, you lay out the contours of that Christian political theology using the language of legitimate but provisional and common but accountable. Can you explain what you mean by those terms, why they're needed, and kind of how that helps to frame the role of government in civic society? Sure. I'd be happy to, uh, to do that. Yeah, as I was constructing this book and trying to think of a good way to introduce uh, the kind of ideas, the basic ideas of the book that I was going to be developing, uh, I identified these four terms that I thought together capture uh, a solid, uh, balanced biblical theology of political community. The first of these is legitimate. And that basic claim is that uh, in scripture, we find that civil governments and our civil officials uh, are ordained of God. Uh, we find this, for example, in Romans 13. And so that allows us, and I think requires us, to make a basic affirmation that though our governments and our civil officials are imperfect, very imperfect often, uh, that they have been put in place by God, and therefore uh, they do demand our honor and uh, respect, even when we disagree with them very seriously. But that leads to the second point, which is that our political... Uh, arrangements are provisional. And what I mean by that is that they are put into place by God, but they're put into place by God only for a time. Uh, they are not eternal institutions. Uh, they are not institutions that we expect to be living under when we reach the new heavens and new earth. Uh, God has uh, established these political institutions and our political rulers uh, for particular uh, purposes in this fallen world in which we live, in order to do justice, in order to punish wrongdoers, in order to protect and praise those uh, who are good. So I think it's really important that we acknowledge the legitimacy of these institutions and at the same time uh, recognize uh, that they are temporary uh, and uh, have provisional purposes for this present world. So then the third term that I use is common. And what I mean by that is that God has instituted our political institutions and our political rulers in order to serve all human beings in common. Uh, 
uh, God has an ins- has not instituted political institutions only for a certain kind of person, uh, only for Christians, for example, or only for people of a certain ethnic background or people who live in a certain sort of place. Uh, no, uh, scripture indicates that uh, civil institutions are for all people. Uh, they ought to do justice for all sorts of people. Uh, they ought to uh, give protection for all sorts of people. Uh, and so I think this is, uh, if this is true, and I think there's a really good biblical case for it, then I think that informs us as Christians that um, we can't expect civil governments, we shouldn't expect civil govern- governments to serve only us or to protect only ourselves, uh, but we are in this together and that we are called as best we can uh, to live in peace with all sorts of people and to seek uh, the common good and justice of our societies uh, together. And that leads to the final uh, of these terms, which is accountable. And I think this is an important thing to affirm alongside affirming the common character of our political institutions. Uh, While it's the case that God has ordained these political institutions for all people alike, uh, that doesn't mean that our political institutions are in some way morally neutral or even ultimately religiously neutral. Uh, Our political institutions, our political rulers are accountable to God. Uh, They don't have the liberty to make up what is just, uh, to create uh, a notion of goodness. Uh, Our political rulers are responsible ultimately to God himself uh, for ruling in a just way. And uh, they will be called to account by God on the last day for how they have uh, carried out this responsibility. So there are obviously a lot of other terms we might use to describe our, our political arrangements, but I think these four terms get at four really, really important biblical uh, ideas, and really the rest of my book works out these ideas uh, through, uh, through looking at a lot of other uh, particular issues. Well, I think those four categories, they're really helpful, and that's something that I picked up early on in the book, obviously, that you work out through the rest, is just how helpful those are. And just as you lay out your overall kind of framework for political theology, I know the backbone of your political theology might be surprising to some. I think often we think of ourselves as New Testament Christians, and we focus on the New Testament community and how the New Testament would inform how we engage in society but one of the things that I really appreciated about your book is that early on, you are, it's incredibly thorough um, biblical exegesis walking through not only the covenants, which is kind of a backbone specifically with the Noahic covenant that I'll ask you about, but you walk through the covenants, you walk through the biblical text and show from the very beginning in creation all the way through the New Testament Um, There's an emphasis on scripture. There's an emphasis on what the Bible is telling us and teaching us because often when we get into a lot of these political theologies or social ethics, we kind of dabble in the Bible or we pull in proof text. But that's something I really appreciated about your book is it didn't feel that way at all is you were literally walking me through the scriptures, uh, walking readers through them. And I found that really particularly helpful Um, given the state of often the way these conversations go. But as I said, I think it might surprise some, um, specifically those in my Baptist heritage, uh, where we see the Old Testament covenants being fulfilled in Christ and no longer directly applicable to the New Testament vision of the church. But you actually base kind of your political theology 
based on the Noahic covenant. Why is that? And why do you see that as um, helpful to understand kind of the role of government in society? I found it very compelling. I just wanted you to kind of expand on that a little bit. Sure. Yeah. Thank you for the kind words. And uh, I'm I'm glad to hear that you found that helpful. Uh, it certainly is an important uh, foundation uh, for, for my book. Uh, you know, certainly there's a sense in which I would uh, absolutely want to affirm we are New Testament Christians. We are those who live uh, here at the end of the ages, uh, who have uh, all these great privileges of the new covenant uh, after Christ's uh, resurrection and uh, ascension. And yet, I think as we uh, as we look at the New Testament, as it as it tells us all these crucial things uh, about our Christian life, about the nature of the church, how we. Uh, conduct ourselves uh, as believers here and now, uh, the New Testament doesn't really tell us very much uh, about civil government. I mean, of course, we do have uh, a text like Romans 13, 1 through 7. But, you know, you you think about that, that's a pretty short text, and that's the most extensive instruction we get about about civil government. And I think we there, there I think there there is this real sense that as you read the New Testament, even as you read Romans 13, that there's an assumption that we already know something about what justice is supposed to be, uh, about uh, what uh, what political rulers are supposed to be doing. And the New Testament doesn't feel like it needs to tell us, all of that, all uh, all over again, and so uh, w- w- as you're indicating, one of the things that I try to do uh, early on in my book is to give this Old Testament background that I think is so so foundational, and uh, it's it's not that the New Testament is pointing us back to the uh, the law of Moses as this as this uh, detailed model for what our civil governments are supposed. to to look like. Uh, the reason why I go back to the covenant with Noah uh, after the great flood, uh, described at the end of Genesis 8 and then in Genesis 9, is because uh, this is a covenant that God made with the entire human race. I think that's absolutely essential to, uh, to understand. Uh, uh, that covenant uh, is made with Noah and all his descendants after him. Uh, actually, with all living creatures, uh, with the entire earth, even, uh, and uh, so here you have a, a, a genuinely, uh, absolutely universal covenant, and this covenant that God makes, uh, that He made with uh, the world at that time, uh, involved justice. Uh, one of the things that we find in that covenant in, in uh, Genesis nine six, uh, this this phrase, "He who sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed." Uh, there's this um, sense that uh, human beings are required to be doing justice, uh, and this is a commission given to the entire human race. And another thing that's very interesting about this Noahic covenant is that God indicates that it will be in effect. Uh, he has put it into place for as long as the world endures. Um, and that means that this covenant is still in place now. Uh, it is going to be in place until until Christ returns, and so there's. I think there's there's a different way that we look at the this Noahic covenant, even from the way we look at say the Abrahamic covenant or the covenant at Mount Sinai, uh, which I think you can say are fulfilled in the new covenant uh, uh, in this very important way. 
such that those covenants are not directly still in effect. Uh, but the Noahic covenant is in effect until Christ returns. And so there's a real sense in which we as Christians are living under two covenants. We're living under the Noahic covenant alongside all of our fellow human beings as God promises to continue to preserve this world and to preserve structures like civil government in this world, uh, even while we're also living under the new covenant and are, are members of Christ's church and enjoy all the benefits of uh, redemption. So I hope that offers at least uh, a little explanation uh, uh, for that. Um, I think it, uh, if you, I think if you understand and get that point, uh, there's a lot about what Scripture says about government that can really be illuminated and clarified. Well, I know as of late we've seen a resurgence, especially in Protestant circles, uh, surrounding the use of natural law. Can you define for us what is natural law and then how natural law plays into your argument for a political theology after Christendom? Sure. Yeah. Uh, to offer a brief definition of natural law, uh, I would say that it is uh, – it's the law of God uh, that God makes known to all people through the world that he has made. So obviously God reveals his law uh, throughout scripture – uh, he reveals his, his moral will for us. Uh, but uh, the Christian tradition has, uh, has affirmed that God also reveals his moral will through the natural order itself. Uh, Romans 1 and 2 are uh, often pointed to as classic proof text uh, of this point. And one of the reasons why I think this is important uh, is because uh, Scripture doesn't provide us with some sort of um, comprehensive code for what our civil governments or our civil law is supposed to look like today. Uh, and even if it did, you might say, we as Christians uh, still have to engage non-Christians who don't uh, don't accept the testimony of scripture and, and uh, scripture, and in some cases haven't uh, uh, haven't even heard the word of scripture. They're totally ignorant of, of the scriptures. And so what the doctrine of natural law allows us to do is to say, uh, is to affirm with scripture that all of our fellow human beings, uh, whether they're believers or unbelievers, whether they know the scriptures or don't know the scriptures, they know the basic moral law of God. They know the basics of what is right, right and wrong. Uh, they know the basics of what makes for a just society. Uh, and I think in, in some ways that can give us confidence as Christians uh, that uh, even though there are many people who may want to deny and, of course, do deny uh, some very basic concepts of right and wrong, some very basic concepts of justice, uh, that at some level, as Romans 1 says, they know these things. Uh, and the natural order, we might say, uh, the natural knowledge that all people have simply by virtue of living in this world and being an image bearer of God, uh, it allows us a certain way to talk to people about important moral and political things. And so if we are going to be serious about uh, participating in political communities after Christendom uh, alongside of uh, non-Christians, then I think uh, having a good concept of natural law is going to be very important for us. Uh, 
That doesn't mean it's easy. It doesn't mean that uh, uh, making arguments from the natural order is easy or that we're always going to find it simple to convince other people. Uh, but I think we find that natural revelation, natural law is uh, a very important resource for us as we think about trying to uh, engage a wide variety of people in our civil societies. Yeah, I think that was one concept surrounding natural law that's really kind of dawned on me over the last few years is understanding natural law is more than just a cultural apologetic. It's not less than that. Obviously, it's something we can engage in a common language. But as our society is increasingly rejecting even kind of basic moral categories, it does give us an opportunity to speak to the natural and created order in a way hopefully that's not only winsome but also speaking kind of the moral fabric of our universe and the way that God has created um, this world to work. I know some listeners may or may be familiar with the concept of Augustine's two cities or Luther's concept of two kingdoms. And I know specifically in the book, you rely um, heavily on Luther's understanding of t- the two kingdoms. Can you explain kind of the significance of these visions for um, cultural engagement and how they tie into your argument for a Protestant vision of political engagement? Sure. Yeah. Uh First of all, Augustine's notion of the two cities uh, has certainly had an enormous impact on Christian political thinking uh, for the last 1,500 years. Uh, In Augustine's probably greatest work, uh, The City of God, uh, he lays out this this vision uh, in which he, he identifies two cities. One of them is the City of God. Uh, this city, you might say, is an eschatological city. It's ultimately the new creation, uh, that everlasting kingdom. Uh, And he envisions the city of God uh, as present in this world uh, uh, insofar as we Christians are citizens of this city. Uh, We are pilgrims now. Uh, We are on our way to that everlasting city. Uh, and yet we're living in this world uh, uh, here and now. And then this other city, uh, the worldly city, uh, is uh, is ultimately uh, a city which is uh, destined for destruction, uh, destined for condemnation. And he sees all unbelievers as citizens of this city. Uh, and of course, they too are living in this world at the present time. And so for Augustine, uh, this present world is a mixed world. Uh, our, our communities of this world are inhabited by both citizens of the city of God and uh, of this earthly city. And uh, there's, in some sense, this great antithesis between these cities. Uh, we have dis- uh, different loves. Uh, we have different destinies. Uh, we have different objects of worship. Uh, and yet, at the same time, Augustine tries to develop this sense that in many important respects, we are called to live together. We're called to mix together in this present world. And so that we as we as Christians uh, can make use of the things of this world, uh, at least insofar as they don't take us away from the love and the worship uh, of the true God. So that is... I, I don't think that idea tells us everything we need to know about faithful political life, but I do think that it captures some important biblical truths that can help 
provide a general framework for thinking about our place in this world. Now, uh, with the two kingdoms uh, idea, I, I would I would have to modify slightly what you said. I would I would adhere not so much to Luther's two kingdoms view as to uh, really what became a, a, a more reformed or uh, Presbyterian view of the two kingdoms, which has some similarities to Luther's, but is not, uh, it, it's not quite the same. Uh, the way that uh, I would understand the two kingdoms idea uh, is that uh, God rules this world. Uh, he, he rules, obviously, this whole world, uh, the the whole world is his, and he rules it through his son. Uh, but there's uh, there's a fundamental distinction in the way that God rules this world. Uh, on the one hand, uh, he rules this world as its as its creator and sustainer. Uh, he has made this world. He uh, he maintains its uh, its order, uh, its bounty. Uh, he maintains uh, various institutions in this world, our legal, our political, our economic institutions, and he does this for the good of all people. Uh, sometimes uh, some theological traditions uh, might refer to this as God's common grace uh, in this world. And yet God also uh, has this redemptive rule, uh, this redemptive kingdom uh, by which he is bringing salvation to this world that he preserves. And he is establishing his church, and uh, he is bestowing the benefits of salvation even now. Uh, and so, this is uh, you might say the the other kingdom, this redemptive kingdom, uh, by which God exercises His saving rule in this world. And of course, these two rules of God uh, are linked in some uh, very important ways. Uh, if it wasn't for God's common preserving rule in this world, uh, there would be no world for God to save. Uh, so we uh, we understand that God has one unified purpose in this world, and yet he carries out this purpose uh, both by uh, preserving this world and all people in it and by redeeming a people for himself. So part of the way that I unpack my, my book is to rely on this idea that we as Christians live in two kingdoms. Um, we live, of course, as members of Christ's church and ultimately as citizens of heaven. But at the same time, uh, we also participate in God's uh, preservative common rule in this world. And so um, we can participate uh, in our political communities, uh, in the legal and economic life uh, of this world around us. So I hope that gives uh, a bit of a sense of, uh, of these two ideas, which are certainly, um, they've been very important historically, and they can also be uh, controversial sometimes. Uh, they obviously uh, involve a lot of deep theological thinking uh, as we uh, wrestle through these issues. No, and I think that's a really helpful overview of those those concepts and kind of how they play into a lot of the modern controversies or even debates uh, surrounding how we live out our political theology, how we live out um, our life in this kingdom. And one of the – as we shift from kind of the first part of your book on political theology over to the section on political ethics – you talk a little bit about political ethics and how that ties into issues of religious liberty, the family, justice, the concept of rights, and even civil authority. What do you mean by political ethics, and how does that political theology play itself out 
um, in these concepts uh, that we talked about with rights and uh, civil authority and family and justice. Yeah, I was uh, I I borrowed that distinction of political theology and political ethics from uh, the work of Oliver O'Donovan, who is a, a rather well-known Anglican uh, political. Uh, I don't know. I guess you would say ethicist, uh, political theologian. Um, although I don't work things out exactly the way that he does. So basically, what I uh, what I meant by political theology in the first part of my book was. Uh, a general biblical theology of political life. Uh, what does scripture say about God's purposes for civil government, uh, for political community? And what does scripture say about our place as scriptures within these uh, communities? When I turn to political ethics in the second part of the book, uh, here I, you might say I'm, I'm, Assuming the political theology that I try to develop in the first part, and then ask the question, well, given these theological ideas, uh, given our theological convictions about the purposes of civil government and our place within political communities, uh, how does that shape the way we think about some really important political and legal issues? like the ones you mentioned, uh, religious liberty, justice, rights, uh, and uh, the like. In, in this second part of the book, uh, I, would, uh, I would be somewhat less dogmatic, you might say. Um, I am in some ways more suggestive uh, in this second part of the book. Uh, I, uh, a lot of these issues uh, are not worked out in detail in the scriptures. Uh, and I recognize that Christians uh, might come to some different conclusions uh, on these. And yet I think it's important to say, even if Scripture doesn't give us precise, detailed answers about every question of political and legal theory, yet the kind of theological framework that we have uh, provides us a way of thinking through political and legal issues in a godly way. And so what I try to do, what I try to demonstrate in the second part of my book with this of what I call political ethics is trying to think through these important practical issues in a godly way that reflects a solid biblical theology. And I don't expect all Christians to agree with all of my conclusions, uh, but I do hope that these discussions can stimulate thought and uh, help us as Christians at least to think better uh, about these uh, very important political and legal issues, which are certainly relevant for our own day, but are in another sense perennial issues that uh, Christians have been thinking about for a very long time. Yeah, and I think that that's, that's one of the aspects of the book that I also really appreciate is that you did, you did really accomplish that goal is even as a reader diving in there and saying, maybe I don't agree with him maybe on every single point, but it, you've caused me to think and to evaluate. And I think that's something that's immensely helpful in society is to be challenged in our own ideas, to be challenged by other ideas and to think through kind of the ramifications and how these things play out, especially from a biblical perspective. One of the areas that I wanted to ask you about specifically in the relationship between technology and ethics and the role of government is how do you – how would you say that your framework for a political theology 
applies to a lot of the current debates surrounding the role of even technology companies and kind of the outsized influence that they might have in our society over public discourse, over content moderation. A lot of these modern controversies surrounding even Section 230 and issues of uh, content moderation, how would you see the role of government in that? Because some argue for a strong hand of government, but in the book, you make a pretty compelling case of a limited role of government. So how would you approach some of these bigger issues surrounding content moderation and the outsized influence of the technology industry in our society? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, I have to say it's not the usual question I get when I'm uh, uh, talking about my book. Um, you know, you're, you're certainly right. Uh, I, I do make uh, a sort of sustained case, uh, particularly through the second part of the book, uh, for a uh, a limited uh, role for government. And I, I try not to define what limited government means exactly. I think there's plenty of room for debate about that. But I think there's a really good case to make from Scripture uh, that we don't want a, a really, really powerful government, uh, that we uh, want to be very concerned to keep government uh, within some uh, pretty serious constraints. And uh, I certainly continue to to hold that view, although I think it is interesting that these uh, the 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 kind of issues that you're asking me about uh, are are an interesting test case uh, for this because it, it seems to me that one of the one of the strongest cases that one can make for well for a stronger hand of government is to uh, to serve as a kind of counterweight to other very strong institutions. And I do think in our, in our present world, uh, probably the, the institutions that, that can compete with governments in terms of power uh, are probably, probably these large multinational corporations. Um, and certainly the, um, these, Technology companies that you're you're asking me about are uh, are great and perhaps the best examples of this. And so, on the one hand, I would say, you know, as a Christian, one of the reasons why I think we should have a limited government uh, is because I think we're all sinners, uh, and I don't want to see a government that's too powerful. I don't want to, I don't want the concentration of power uh, in in any one institution. I think that's extremely dangerous. I think we as all as all of us as Christians should view that as something as something very dangerous. But I think that same logic also rightly makes us concerned about other sorts of institutions that become very powerful. Uh, if we can't trust government, uh, a very large all-powerful government, uh, then well we certainly should also be wary uh, about very powerful um, businesses. Uh, so I think that there is, uh, I, I think there's a, a good case to be made that uh, the government uh, can serve righteously as a counterweight uh, to powerful institutions, uh, powerful economic in institutions. But at the same time, uh, I, I have to say that probably in, in my own view, uh, I am less concerned about powerful corporations uh, than I am about uh, powerful government. 
And I think if if anything, the the reason for that is that the government bears the sword. And as powerful as Amazon or Apple or Facebook uh, or Google are, uh, they don't bear the sword uh, and they still rely upon uh, the voluntary participation of people in in society and are vulnerable to to competition. So uh, I think those uh, probably offer uh, a a few of my basic thoughts on things. You can feel free to to, uh, follow up uh, if you'd like. But I think you can probably also tell that I don't. Uh, I don't think there's any one simple and obvious answer uh, to this question uh, from a biblical political theology. No, I think that I think you're right on that, and I think that's a lot of the tensions that we're seeing playing out in society right now. Is that you have uh, many social or limited government conservatives who are saying we don't want the government to be involved in a lot of these decisions. But at the same time, as you said, the government can serve as kind of a counterweight um, or a counterbalance to the power of these transnational organizations that in many ways are uh, controlling uh, the flow of information, the free exchange of ideas in terms of Amazon delisting a book or Facebook or Twitter taking down someone's post or someone's account or flagging these things. They do hold an immense power over our society and a lot of our public discourse. And so it's a it's an open question. I mean, obviously, Christians are going to disagree on exactly how to apply that. And I think that's one of the things that I appreciate, especially about that second section of your book, is that you kind of hold those with a more open hand. Obviously, there are certain issues and certain aspects of it that we do have closed hands on as Christians. Um, but as we apply a lot of these principles from the scriptures to these modern-day contexts, there's inevitably going to be disagreements on that. Um, and that's one of the beauties of a civic society and an open public discourse is that we can have these conversations and these debates. Um, and I think this is one area, specifically in my research and my work, and specifically what we do here on Weekly Tech, is helping to apply a lot of those great concepts that you lay out in the book, um, hopefully to apply those to a lot of these modern-day controversies and think think them out with one another so that we can challenge one another and be sharpened by one another. As we end our conversation today, one thing that I wanted to ask you about is if uh, Christians or listeners want to go a little bit deeper into some of these issues, whether it's into the biblical and theological aspects of political theology or getting into some of the uh, political ethics that you lay out in the book, are there one or two resources that you would recommend outside of your really fantastic work, Politics After Christendom, uh, that you would recommend to put in the hands of believers, uh, kind of regardless of maybe their theological education or background? Yeah, um, you know, I think one thing that 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 comes to mind uh, is uh, for for listeners who haven't read uh, any of Augustine's City of God, they might find that to be an interesting uh, uh, thing to read. I, I would, not, I'm not necessarily advising that they read the whole thing. It's a very long work, and some of it is kind of tedious. Uh, but they might look at Book 19. I think there's a lot of wisdom, a lot of uh, interesting material there. Uh, so th- that's one thing that comes to mind. Um, you know, I think for uh, another book, uh, a fairly recent book that um, uh, that explores a lot of the issues that I do from a pretty similar, though not exactly identical perspective, uh, is someone that might be familiar to you and some of your listeners. Uh, Jonathan Lehman's book, Political Church, um, I think is um, offers a lot of 
I think, as I said, a, a, a kind of a similar perspective, but from uh, just coming at things from uh, a different angle uh, in in some respects. Uh, another book that comes to mind, and of, of of course there are, you know, there's been so much written on this. It's uh, it's a little hard off the top of my head just to pick out uh, a couple. But if I can mention one more. Um, I've appreciated the work by Clark Forsyth uh, called Politics for the Greater Good. Uh, Clark Forsyth is a, um, he, he's uh, for a long time been an important person in the uh, American uh, pro-life movement. And I think his book, Politics, Politics for the Greatest Good, uh, offers a lot of wisdom uh, for how to be involved, uh, how Christians can be involved in their political communities uh, in a kind of a wholesome, wise way. Uh, so that's another volume that comes to mind that I think um, would probably be of great help to a lot of listeners. Yeah, those are great recommendations. And for listeners' sake, we'll make sure to include links to all of those in the show notes so you can grab a copy of that, as well as Dr. Van Drunen's new book, Politics After Christendom. Uh, Dr. Van Drunen, I'm really thankful to have you here on Weekly Tech and to talk about these issues. Thank you for your wisdom and your insight and for the biblical case that you make uh, throughout this book for how Christians can engage uh, our ever-changing society. So thank you so much for taking the time to join us here on Weekly Tech. I really enjoyed the conversation. It was an honor to have you. Well, thank you. Uh, I appreciate your having me, and I've enjoyed talking. Well, from all of us here at Weekly Tech, I want to say thank you for listening. If you enjoy Weekly Tech, would you consider leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app? These reviews really help us to know how we're doing and also to share the word about Weekly Tech with others. As a reminder, you can connect with Dr. Van Drunen and learn more about his work, including the recommended resources and the show notes. You can also sign up to receive the Weekly Tech email briefing each Monday morning. It's designed to prepare you to think deeply about the pressing technology issues of our day, as well as stay up to date on the latest technology news. You can subscribe now at jasonthacker.com slash weeklytech. Thank you, and I hope you have a great week. 